This is Paul. And I'm Sheila. And tonight we're going to discuss the third episode of CBS All Access's The Stand. This episode was called Blank Page. I'll be interested to know your thoughts on what they meant by that. It was directed by uh, a pair, uh, Danielle Crudy, I'm going to say, Crudy. I'd agree with that. And Bridget Savage Cole. Mm Mm-hmm. I looked at their credits and they have been working together for a long time. Although this is, although they have a feature film under their belt, I might argue that this, this is probably a bigger, bigger project for them might be their biggest project in, on their resumes. Cool. Um, did, did you, uh, did you re- review their work at all? No. Tell me who they are. That's it. They, they made a, <laughs> they, <laughs> they made a, a feature on Amazon that you could watch, I think on Amazon uh, Prime called Blow the Man Down. I've heard of it. I haven't watched it. I watched the preview and it is about women that get kind of in over their heads, needing to cover up a crime. It looks like that they were, didn't mean to be involved in, but they were involved in. In order to do so, they get tied into the other women in their little, you know, Northeastern town that basically run the underworld in like kind of the whorehouse, I guess, locally. <laughs> you know, every Northeastern town always has a, that. It's, yeah, it's a, always a good story when you have a, a whorehouse in there. Yeah. Yeah. Almost no one is fam- famous as in it, but Margot Martindale, which you might know uh, from maybe oh, from, uh, like, the uh, Americans. The Americans yeah. And she was also in uh, Mrs. America that we covered last year. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, earlier this year. Caroline and I binged uh, Justified recently, and she was the big bad in one of the um, oh, the seasons really? of that. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Those directors are part of sort of a, not sort of, they are, there's no sort of about it, part of a women's coalition or alliance of filmmakers that promote women and in, in the industry. So the fact that they wrote that movie and it's about that and covers those themes and juxtaposes the idea of women that run their own whorehouse being the most powerful people around. I, I think that's all intentional <laughs> and, <laughs> and not maybe not casting the same preconceived notions that you might have about whorehouses on the way that they're going to view it in that movie. I haven't seen it yet. So maybe it's the same kind of place they, they portray in every kind of movie, but I doubt it. I really <laughs> kind of doubt it. Well, that's interesting that you say that that's sort of their take on filmmaking, because this was a very heavily female oriented episode. If you step and think, stop back and think about it. Well, there was a lot of Nadine. A lot of Nadine. We got more of Fran. Fran with the pregnancy, right? And Mother Abigail makes a, a more definitive appearance. All true. There's a little bit more to discuss on terms of like the big picture part of the episode, but I wanted to mention a couple other credits. Uh, before we got there, we have the pair of writers, someone named Jill Killington, who I don't know, but she also goes by the credit Jill Kill, which you might if your name was Killington and you wrote horror. You would absolutely 100% <laughs> drop the inkton. <laughs> she serves as a producer on the show. So that's not too uncommon where a producer or an executive producer also is in the writing room and gets a credit on a show. That's not too too weird. Mm -hmm. But the big man's son, Owen King, is also listed. I saw that front and center in the credits. Do you ever read any of his work? 
I've not really dived into to Owen stuff. No. I've is only it, read the good? one that he co-wrote with dad, the one called Sleeping Beauties, which I would recommend. Okay. Maybe that's why he was attached to this one, was your observation about the importance and the role of women in this episode seems to relate to maybe some themes in uh, Sleeping Beauties. It's, uh, I'll, I'll give you the, the overview of the plot real quick. A sickness of some sort overtakes the world. Oh, where have we heard this before? <laughs> <laughs> this is a very different sickness. The results of the sickness are that within, say, a couple of days, as women, only women uh, of a certain age, maybe it's girls, but I don't recall. So teen and older, let's just say, uh, go to sleep uh, like a cocoon forms around them. And if you fuck with that cocoon, it's bad news for the woman inside. And while they're in the cocoon, their consciousnesses join in some more, it's like a parallel version of our world, but there are no men and everything's still there and they can use it, but there's just no men around. So like if your car was in the driveway, you're as far as I recall, the car was there too. You know, it was like, same thing, but no men. Meanwhile, the men have the planet that, that we still have, but with the cocoon women. And um, as you might imagine, we don't keep our heads. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's a bad deal. I was going to say that the, the women all living in this collective consciousness sounds like Wonder Woman, like the, like the Mysterio. Where they live, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, I will not go any further than that, but that is the setup. And that is a good hook to start with, though. Yeah, they co-wrote that. And I, want to see, I want to read about men fucking up the world. Oh, wait, they already... Well, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's... Uh, yeah, stop. it's I'll a stop. it's a fun read. It's a thick book, but it's a it's a it's a it's a good one. It's a and good one. Dad and Son teamed up for that. Yes, that sounds cool. Sometimes when you read uh, a co-authored book, you can kind of run smack into where they traded off chapters or whatever. You're like, this feels different, <laughs> but that one didn't really set off my alarms too much. They seem to flow in and out of each other pretty well. Well, I guess that kind of makes sense. You kind of grow up in that world. They did. They did. Yes. Yes. All right. Back to what we were talking about before. You noticed yes. the big women themes. Did you notice anything else? Definitely feels like there's a change happening. Um, we're definitely getting away from the beginning part, and it feels like we're moving into cruise control now, into the actual storyline. Now, I'm going to get out of my depth here just about as soon as I say this next comment, <laughs> because I am not well studied in the topic, but it seemed like there was enough to go on here that I can say that there was a lot of Christian imagery here. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. A lot oh, of absolutely. It. The combination of the crucified guy. That was that was my initial take with that. I said, uh, is this like, you know, the stigmata much, you know, even the, the way he was only wearing underpants um, mm. very much evoked the, the notion of, you know, Jesus on the cross. The only thing really missing was the crown of thorns. Mm -hmm. But then you also had the um, Andros scenes, the next scenes where he goes to his enemy and 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 provides Bates. comfort. Yes. Bates him. Yes. Yeah, that's that's lifted right out of chapter and verse. It felt that way. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I'm not well read enough to speak on that very intelligently, <laughs> but it felt right. I'm a retired Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you, you, Irish, and then you married into it. Italian family, Italian, so yeah, you're so. double whammy. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I'm okay this way. 
All right. So if you if you uh, have anything smart to say about that as we go on, then then please add to the discussion because, um, like I said, just noticing it was about as far as I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. What do you want to talk about first? We have several flashbacks covering Nick, which we wanted. Yes. Okay. Can we start with Nick then? I guess. Then, I guess that's okay. a good part to start because he's not a woman. Because everyone else, everyone else after this is really about women. So. Okay. Let's um, do that. Yeah. So Nick was. He was really good in this episode. Like this actor, Henry Zaga, I don't know him from anything. I didn't watch the the Runaways is what he was in. It was the New Mutants. I So I started watching the 94 stand and I got about halfway through it. And this Nick, 2020 Nick, is doing such a better job in my mind of conveying the pain that he's felt growing up and his, like the irony that he's feeling in being the voice for Mother Abigail. Mm. Yeah, I you're liked, right. I liked how brooding he is, especially when he's with Randall in the card game. Oh, my God. I love that scene. The scene with him and Randall in his uh, comatose, uh, quasi-unconscious state. And that's when he learns about his eye being uh, impaired. Now another sense, another faculty to be impaired. Did you happen to catch the card game, the song that's playing in the background? No, I did not. It was You'll never get away from me. And so it's a song originally from the Gypsy, um, from Gypsy by Bette Midler, and it was done by Tony Bennett. So it was absolutely this crude, it's very subtle in the background. I'm like, I know that voice. And it was just a very perfect setup for this being like the draw to Las Vegas. Um, is that a, mm. a car table? It was just, you'll never get away from me. Like I'm sucking you in. It was just a very well done, very subtle, very subtle scene. Um, in terms of like the detail of what they showed and what they, you know, made you hear. Because I listen to a lot of things with headphones, especially when I'm trying to like take notes, pay attention really, really, because like, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to pay attention. So I try to put headphones on, I put captions on, there's no captions on this. So it makes it makes it interesting for me because then I pick up on more things with the background noise that I hear too. That's a great observation because the crooner style is yes. kind of trademark Vegas, Vegas yeah. style. The cards themselves had sort of occult looking suits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, uh, that was cool. And I don't remember if that was from the book, but that feels probably close to what, what mm-hmm. might probably happened in the book. And what you're saying about the actor emoting and expressing a lot, I hadn't thought of it that way because I just kind of accepted, well, Rob Lowe is a well-known actor. He's the one that played Nick in the first, first go around. But you're you're exactly right in that when we see Nick in the old one, he's just sort of this good natured guy, but but a very blank slate kind of guy also. Yeah, he's just like along for the ride, it felt like. Like I said, I only watched halfway through the 94 one, but then coming back to this, this version of it, I'm like, oh, he's definitely showing that when, especially in the conversation with Mother Abigail, when he's having the dream with Mother Abigail and he says, you know, the world has never been interested in, in what I have to say or what I have to offer. Just hearing him say that in the dreamlike state was just like, yes, this is this is what Nick is about. That he's, he's you know, God put the irony coffee cup on the irony button is like, why are you choosing me for this? And she's like, well, I was chosen for this and nobody asked me. So she's making him feel that we don't necessarily understand why we're being picked for this, but we do have to follow along and obey to a certain extent. There was also a certain amount of the choice that he is put to by Randall and Abigail, where Randall offers the idea of fixing his impairments Mm -hmm. 
whereas Abigail's like, you're fine the way you are. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, in the communities in which I live, I have some level of knowledge of the attitudes of people with various challenges, particularly being hard of hearing or deaf. And Mm -hmm. that mirrors their exact, I guess, conundrum that they face from society all the time. Within their community, they don't view a loss of hearing as, as an actual impairment. Whereas when a hard of hearing person is born into a hearing family, you might see the person undergo surgery, get a cochlear implant and all that to try to fix their hearing or whatever. Whereas uh, it, that's pretty uncommon if, say, there's deaf parents and a deaf child is born to them. It's pretty uncommon because, like I said, they don't feel that there's a problem. This kind of attitude that everything's fine the way you are, we'll, we'll make it work, it's no big deal. That is highly validating <laughs> to, to that people in that walk of life. Even the, even the eye business, which is tough, which is definitely a, a tough thing to, to add to the, to the list, but it's not a big deal in, in, in Boulder. The way that they that they drew the, the like a real line in the sand there between the two, like a comparison, made it clear what 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 he had to choose between, and it and it seemed to to me anyway to mirror real things that aren't happening in fantastical places, which was a satisfying thing to watch. Mm-hmm. Well, let's discuss the shift of Nick's story away from the written word, and did you like how they compressed it, smushed it? and turned it into something else, but still told the story. I thought it was pretty ingenious how they compressed his story. I just, my notes were like, it's, uh, his backstory is quick. You know, they, they did the combo beating of, uh, of him and the loss of the aisle at the same time. We know from the book that that happened in two separate instances and that he had this, you know, foray into being the, uh, the would-be sheriff yes. deputy for, for a little while. So I, I liked how they compressed him and uh, using Randall actually as a sum up for his impairments and the, some of the struggles that he's gone through that took a lot of space on the written page. I liked it. I don't know. What, what were your thoughts on it? Oh, once I realized what was going on, I thought it was genius. I mean, I'm not as sure about the moment when Tom shows up because there's not a lot of like lead in for that. Let me see if I can give a comparison to listeners that maybe not that maybe haven't read the book in very fast forward fashion Mm -hmm. and let them know (laughs) what they're missing. (laughs) Essentially, same thing kind of happens. Nick gets roughed up, but he goes to jail instead because he's not, you know, critically wounded, but he's in jail basically to keep him safe, if I recall. Yes. Yeah. Sheriff Baker takes pity on him. And so he lives for days, if not weeks in a jail cell because he's got nowhere else to go. And his abusers are also there with him. And he's their caretaker. Yes. He becomes sort of like the trustee, kind of. But even, you know, he's not actually in jail. He's just got no place to go. The world's falling apart. He he has to meet the sheriff. He has to meet the doctor. The doctor tells us how his like wife makes food and takes takes it to the sheriff when he gets sick or something. Yeah. It's like, it's like a and lot. he goes to like the truck stop to get food for the prisoners. And there's like a petty cash. It's, it's a very involved tale, but. It is, and and it all and it also reflects some of King's older fashioned approaches toward people with disabilities. Like they kept calling him dummy and stuff like that. And I always hated that part in both the, the book and the show. And because uh, I, I thought that 
I don't know, could do, he could do better. And this is more like a, just a misunderstanding, a drunk guy with a misunderstanding and he just starts hitting a guy that is yeah, pretty pounding. believable. Yeah. So going back to your analysis though, the way they smoosh this in, put it in the hospital, you get the same beats in terms of needing to choose between abandoning or helping the guy that beat him up. Um, it's all there. It's maybe even kind of beautiful the way that it plays out here and that he actually touches the guy and and sits with him basically as he's dying. Man, that was that was uh, the guy had no idea what to what to expect there. He was afraid at first. And and just the the way that it turned just shows how gentle a soul Nick really is. I liked that. And then Tom just showed up out of nowhere. (laughs) My laws. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tom Cullen, yeah. Tom Cullen, M-O-O-N. M-O-O-N. That's spelled ouch. <laughs> for for people new to the stand, M-O-O-N spells everything. Yes. <laughs> Tom, that speech that he recites, that also feels familiar to my life in terms of a person that's probably undergone some amount of vocational type training Tra- and training preparation. Or, and, yes, yes. I appreciated that 2020 update that Tom was treated a little rough in the book. He's labeled as retarded. And we, we yeah. just, you know, that's a, that's a hard word to like dumb dummy for someone who's mute. I don't like that. I never have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I appreciated the, the more sensitive update for him. He's not yeah. harmful. He's just developmentally disabled or development. What does he say? He just he says developmentally challenged. I think he says, I'm not sure what he says now. I don't remember the exact word. It's a long speech. (laughs) Yeah, it's a long speech. And then like, it's his comfort zone too. So like when he kind of runs out of something to say, he starts back over the loop. Yeah, I think that's probably part of the training. If the person doesn't seem to understand, say it again. Say it again, yep. I like when he figures out, he goes, oh, he goes, I figured out that you can't talk. (laughs) Yeah. My laws. (laughs) I liked the representation of Tom because he does come across as a little comical with his idioms that he comes out with. So I appreciated his companionship to Nick, whatever that looked like. But there was a moment, though, that Nick kind of looks at at Tom in much the same way that Franny looked at Harold back in episode one when she realized that he was the only other living person. Mm-hmm. It's like, why him? And Nick kind of has the same look like, oh, God, this is what I'm saddled with. Yeah, I think I saw that, too. But there's no way Nick can not help this guy right because he's got he's got the dream too and uh i don't know if you notice he's wearing a oklahoma university desk dolly parton shirt shirt. ah i love that i couldn't tell the shirt because it was on my phone again Mm -hmm. but yeah the vest was the ou vest and Mm -hmm. you know locally since i live in texas we think terrible things about sooners (laughs) so yeah they're innocuous to me over here in New York. Yeah, it's a, it's just a dumb Southern thing to you, I'm sure. But. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. If he was from Connecticut, I'd have opinions. There you go. There you go. That's a topic if I have If he was from no Jersey, I'd have about. even stronger opinions. I bet. See? <laughs> See? We all have our things. See? I can relate. Yeah. Tom mentions a head injury when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. I think we're supposed to draw a dotted line there. Yes. What else about Tom? Tom, man, I... Like you just said, in terms of the updating and all that, 
We don't use the R word in my house. Nope. <laughs> not is, here either. It's like a word that when you hear someone use it, not like you just used it in a very, you know, clinical sense like that, but when someone uses it to describe someone or their own behavior or, or something like that, and what they really mean is stupid or something like that, it's like you've detected a way to find out that someone has, it's like they're, they've lowered themselves <laughs> in, in a way they've degraded themselves. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. By using that word. So, uh, it's, it's just builds like a strong reaction in my guts when mm -hmm. I, when I hear it. And that was something that, that, you know, when this was written, there really hadn't been that kind of, I don't know, build up or anything. The connotation was still a fairly, that was right. the word was they no, used. Yeah, there was no attention to the sensitivity that people who would be called that, who may not have fit the clinical determination. Like my son has like speech delays and, you know, people have said, like, you know, is he retarded? I'm like, no, he just is a little bit trouble speaking. <laughs> You know, uh -huh. and it's just, it's a very hard word to hear. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. I mean, it's a defense mechanism, sure. but I've been asked and I'm like, no, he just has a speech delay and it's called apraxia and we're working on it. And, you know, the only thing that helps is speech therapy and practice. So takes time, um, takes time. I mean, he wasn't verbal until he was three years old. First word he said was Woody from Toy Story. That was his favorite character. Not mom, not mm. dad, Woody. <laughs> Did you get any um, false positives for people wanting to say autism or were they straight to speech stuff? Uh, no, we did have him ruled out for autism. Um, and the neurologist that, I mean, I did the checklist. I'm like, I, I'm not a parent in denial. And I know 100% in my gut that this is not autism because he didn't have any of the other markers. Mm. I mean, I did the checklist for him. I did the checklist for myself. I did the checklist for my husband. <laughs> I'm like, wow. I'm like, I am on the spectrum based on this. Because I like things in a certain order. If you like order, if you like to do things in a routine, that is considered spectrum-like behavior. I'm like, oh, so being an organized person is considered on the spectrum. Got it. But no, they, they did run to an autism rule-out first, which is I appreciated from his pediatrician. He goes, I don't think it is. He goes, but let's start there. And he goes, but also, you know, simultaneously go for the speech evaluation. He's like, I think it's more that. Good. Um, because you could spin your wheels in a very expensive way. Yeah, no, but <laughs> the, the neurologist that we went to, was she was terrible. She was like, oh, look at him. He's taking out the blue marbles and putting them together and the yellow marble. I'm like, I didn't even go to the appointment, Paul. I went, I did it over FaceTime because I'm like, this is how much I don't agree that this is autism. <laughs> and I said to her, I was like, but that's what they have him do in early intervention. Mm. It's like they have him like take out things and they put them in like order. So this way, you, you know, you start building your little pile of blue and your little pile of yellow and you go from there. And I said, he maintains eye contact the entire time. I was like, I, I said, we sit, we, when he eats, we talk to him and he's maintaining eye contact and there's reciprocal sounds, not speech, but reciprocal sounds. So I said, he's picking up on social cues. This is when he's two years old. So I'm like, it's not, it's not that I'm like, if anyone you should be talking to, it should be me. <laughs> to see see what we can uh, do about my little ticks and quirks but yeah um so yeah so it becomes a very hard road to to go down when you're dealing with that i mean i know that you have as well but to to have people jump to sort of very offensive terms is is hard and and i think the way that the story is bringing this in with tom is just a nice update for where we're at and where we're at socially and hoping that in in society 2.0 in the stand that, you know, some of that sensitivity remains. 
it will be interesting to see how they utilize Tom coming up. Um, as a book reader, I have some things that I know that he's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Some things that are going to be hard uh, for him to do. And, and I'm excited to see what they do. Uh, if they decide to make him do it or they move the plot around or if they keep it the way it is or totally acts. I don't know. I don't know yet. But I'm excited to see. Yeah. I mean, so far, like the things that they've done to tweak the story, to condense, to move things, I have not been angry at. Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I like the fact that like Owen King's finger is on the pulse for all of this. So um, I appreciate that he's not going to let anybody go too far off the rails either. And I think we're a little bit, I think we're probably done with Nick unless you have more to add. For, oh, the only, only thing is that he knew about the stigmata. And I thought that that was very interesting way to show how he's connected in a sort of more ethereal way to the storyline that we can even comprehend at this point. It's just like something to keep your eye on with him. It's like, okay, well, where is he getting his information from? Um, because so far, all of the supernatural that we've been encountering, the, the correlation of the dreams between Stu, Fran, not Nadine, but Larry, has all been sort of in this dreamlike state. So where he's getting his information from is is something, you know, I just want to keep my my eye on too. Even though the uh, the messenger is the one with the... With crucifixion scars my sad little brain uh mostly centered the christian imagery around nick like mm-hmm. it didn't matter that the scars were on the other guy it mattered that if you were throwing darts they'd all be going toward, <laughs> toward mm-hmm. nick on, yeah. on this so i think that's something to keep an eye on he's even kind of got you know like the facial hair and <laughs> He, you know, I, I didn't want to go there because of like it's a very sort of Western view of of what you know Jesus Christ would have looked like. Um, but then the notion of the bathing, um, you know, of the sick mm-hmm. is a very Christian, very strong image for Christianity, as well as the moment with Randall. You know, you could talk about the corollary between like you know Jesus in the desert where he's tempted by Satan. That's mm-hmm. Randall tempting him. I'll give you back your your faculties. I'll give you back your your sight and your hearing and your ability to speak because you can speak in the dream. Very strong Christian corollaries to the New Testament. Very much so. All right, <laughs> and and I'll give you Lloyd's job. Uh, I wonder if I wonder if Nick was his first choice. I'd say so. I'd say like you know out of the two, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd say Nick was. Uh, you know, Lloyd was just, he's, he's needed for certain things, but uh, Nick is, Nick's got the brain. Or maybe he wanted Nick to keep him off the board f- away from Abigail, you know, like he's sensing power in him. Yeah. Yeah. That can be a, uh, like a fantasy football draft move, right? <laughs> just keep him away from the other guy. Basically. <laughs> yeah. You can and bench him. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Like he's not good enough, to, good enough to make your roster, but if he's on somebody else's, he'll hurt you. So right. Yeah. And then Abigail also knows about the dreams that he's having about the dark man. And that's what she mentions Randall to be. Um, so she knows that he's he's got this this conflict within him. Not that he's going towards Randall, but there's definitely that temptation of I can give you back what you've been missing. And that's where we see the the anger bubbling up, the irony that he's Mother Abigail's voice. He's, we see that in that conversation that he has with Abigail when she asks about the dark man. Mm-hmm. And um, 
so so that was that was interesting that he had that conversation with her and i just loved the little moment where at the very end of the conversation in the dream with abigail she spells um tell him to come to hemingford home she spelled it m-o-o-n if anyone asks yeah i just liked that so much just as a as an it, that was the tom's introduction and then the next moment he wakes up and that's where tom is yes like get used to hearing that or yeah or at least being able to lip read that yeah my loss well, a second ago, you were talking about little changes to the story that we felt improved things. One of those changes, I think, was the opening uh, in the book. As far as I recall, Nadine just sort of appears. And um, here we get uh, a little background that Nadine's role within the dark man's history has plagued her her entire life and her destiny, her potential destiny and her possession of the of the glowing jelly bean um, goes back a long ways. Now, you can blow me out of the water and say, yeah, that scene was in the book, Paul. But <laughs> do you remember that scene it, at all? I do remember it in, in the book. And I'm going to go out on a very drastic limb here and say, I like this telling a hundred times better. The fact that she was so young mm-hmm. when... So she, in the book, she gets this... They're doing this, uh, the planchette thing in college. Oh, Okay. So I remember this being in college. They were talking about like the, her friend, was it Patty or Kathy? Someone who should stop, you know, futzing around with Leonard Katz. I remember that because I was like, that's a very New York name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she was in college. I like this telling so much better because she's then had her whole life. She was like, what, maybe eight or nine, mm-hmm. 10 maybe in the scene in the, in the, the stand here. Whereas in the book, she's, she's already lived 20 years, 18 years of her life. This means that she gets to have this as part of her personality to grow around it for so much longer. Well, and it, and it looks like she's in maybe some sort of girl's home, foster home. Orphanage is sort of not a current term, but maybe something like that. Yeah, I got some sort of institution out of it. I couldn't really put my finger on it, but it's possibly related to maybe not having parents or in a in a placement kind of a situation. Because mm-hmm. they ran out of the room and it wasn't like red alert, you know. <laughs> right. There's no alarm bells going off other than the fact that they were just screaming. Yeah. Um, but that was all spooky stuff, especially how it dug into the wood. Right. Yeah. I'm like, that is a strong pencil. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> my kids could use that because they break lead all the time. I just like that that that's the opening. You hear the snarling as the as the wood is crunching into the floor and this ghostly Nadine is being repeated and it's Randall's voice. We know that now. And just the terror. I can't take my fingers off of it. I just I just like that as an opening. Like if you were already kind of on the fence, like, all right, I've stuck around for two episodes. Let me see. This is a good hook to draw you in because now things are starting to change. The, the story's pivoting a little bit more towards the middle part where you know that there's going to be some strife because now the tension's building. Mm-hmm. But I definitely liked this as a, as a 10-year-old Nadine as opposed to a 20-year-old Nadine. Yeah, your idea of it of it shaping her personality rather than just sort of scarring an adult is, <laughs> is definitely uh, more compelling than it was. This also tells the story of how she met up with uh, Larry and a little bit of meeting up with Joe. Right. The dream she has later, though, where she takes out the planchette and that's basically her radio to Randall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Randall radio. So that let me know that this wasn't just like a curiosity where she just found a planchette and was like, oh, let's What's see if this? that still works. Um, yeah. This felt more like uh, she's been in contact with him 
on a running basis. Oh, definitely. I got that too. Like when she found it, I, there was no accident that it was there. She didn't look surprised. She knew exactly what it was. And she's like, I'm going to keep this here in a safe place. Not to kind of go off the topic, but I just found it so odd that in the house that Nadine and Joe are living in, especially when we have the scene later on with her with the, the planchette the second time when she's much older and present day, the picture's on the wall of the previous family. Seems like you'd take that shit down, right? Like, I would just feel like, especially the, like, the baby pictures in the center of the wall. I'd be like, I would just take that down under the bed. Like, we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It just doesn't seem like, like, it's out of place now. Mm. I guess that's kind of like what moving into, like, a pre-furnished house would be like. But I just don't think that the baby pictures would still be hanging on the wall. But that was just my little foray into, like, why is that? They're still there. That was what I picked up, though, was that these two, like, he's, she's Randall's spy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is, I would say it's probably implied that her running into Larry was not just some random occurrence, even though it's not spelled out. It seems to make sense that she would have been directed, you know, the part about Joe, that just might be her leftover humanity <laughs> right? that won't abandon right. the, the child. But, but and uh, it gives her a good cover to ingratiate herself into the community. There's that. There's that. Some of the important words that they use there pull his trigger. Um, mm-hmm. And then if there's any left lingering doubt about who he is, the planchette <laughs> worked its magic again and told us it's Harold. Oh, my God. You know, it's just interesting that this that's also the moment where Joe finds her. And he's already had this this moment in the prior episode and even in this episode where he's encountered Harold and he's viscerally terrified. And he's not he's not a verbal child at this point due to whatever trauma he's been inflicted with. But he's reacted so strongly twice now to Harold that that's also the moment that he finds her. She's finished writing his name, and that's when he's there. Hmm. I wonder if they've figured out to try to get Joe and Nick hooked up. Or maybe maybe Joe's issue's more recent, so maybe he doesn't actually have sign language. I don't know. I don't remember from the book either. I, I remember he starts talking i remember you're welcome you're welcome ah okay uh so he does have speech i think it's just the trauma of what because i mean the book is much more uh hard on joe nadine finds him he's he's near death she nurses him back to health this is a more sanitized version for him yeah he's almost like i don't know like don't 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 misread the word anyone out there but savage right the way that he attacks larry absolutely Oh, 100%. And he's and in the book even he does that's not his only attack. <laughs> attempt. <laughs> yeah, I no, think he I is recall savage. That. He is and he's very uh primal, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh he's not operating, you know, if you think of like Maslow's pyramid, mm-hmm. of, you know, hierarchy, uh he's very much in the the fight or flight, the the very um primitive stages of survival. He's all limbic uh, system. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> We're getting very cerebral here. Yeah. But yeah, but I, th- I thought that was interesting that that's also the moment that Joe came in was, was when she finished writing Harold Lauder's name. If I'm Harold, I guess I need to try to avoid Joe. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's like my... the uh, Like a lightning rod. For, yeah, detects evil. The school was a very telling part because as soon as Harold walked in, Joe takes three steps back. And Harold speaks and Joe cowers. So if you're not paying attention... Joe's giving you enough cues that someone's going to look in his general direction just because of the movement that he's doing. There's definitely that that I've noticed with Joe. I wonder if it's something sort of like 
the stink lines that Harold puts off are just undeniable, like evil. Whereas the ones that Nadine puts off are camoed somehow because he's he's willing to hang out with her. Right. He's not picking up on anything from her. Maybe she's camouflaging it well, because, again, when she, you know, communicate Randall radio, she communicates via, you know, planchettes to, to Randall. This is not their first encounter. She's I, I want to come to you. There's that very intimate moment where they're they're about to kiss. And Randall says soon, you know, stops. She's lonely. She wants to come to him. So this is not a new phenomenon. And like I said, I think having it be part of her personality from around the age of nine or 10 has allowed her to bury it down so that this way it doesn't manifest itself in a public persona that she has, that she's able to to keep Randall quiet. From what we've seen so far, nobody else has picked up on this at all. And Mm -hmm. we've got lots of supernatural abilities flying around in Boulder between the dreamlike states, the, the the collective dream that the five are having of Mother Abigail to bring them out there, Nick with his voice to Abigail, Abigail and her you know, God's will. There's lots of dark detectors, <laughs> to coin like a term from Harry Potter. There's lots of dark detectors out there in Boulder and no, no one has you know, raised the, the antennas on her. So, And neither has Joe and he's already picked up on the, the evilness of Harold, like you said, so. I wonder if there's like a, a lack of experience with these powers, you know, like I don't get the sense like M- Mother Abigail was quote unquote special before this, like a seer yeah. or a medium. <laughs> or, yeah, no, or, I, I think this is all new to them and they're they're just trying to understand, piece together what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, that feels right. The only real supernatural is, is Randall and he's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so there's a interesting little tidbit there where... Joe can mimic Larry's guitar playing. So I wonder if that's going to come back into play, not necessarily guitar playing, but just the ability to perfectly mimic something that he sees. The music is humanizing him again. It's it's taking him a little bit out of that primal state. Mm, yeah. So um, that might be, be a vehicle for him to be more of a, a communicator, I guess, is, is what maybe I'm trying to say. And mm-hmm. he'll be able to bring more to maybe vocalize when Harold is around, <laughs> why, why he's feeling so scared, so terrified. I mean, terrified is really the word I use to describe when, uh, when anytime Harold's around Joe. So he plays the blues when he, <laughs> when Harold shows up. <laughs> when Harold's around. <laughs> so yeah, we got a little a bit on Nadine, got some on Joe, got just a touch on Larry really, but we, I think we're good on, on Larry with last week's episode. Yeah. Got a confirmation that Rita did, in fact, kill herself. Mm-hmm. That's really about it on them. We got Stu. Stu. Good old Stu. He didn't have much of a place the last episode, so I needed more Stu to come back in. Good old Stu. I had totally forgotten about the meetup prior to Boulder, where Franny and Stu cross paths, but it you know it just doesn't work out right then. Mm-hmm. Harold is such a immature wiener. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> isn't isn't it funny to match up the word wiener with immature as a descriptor <laughs> for somebody as like I'm pointing my finger. Meanwhile, I'm saying wiener. Isn't that like kind of irony, right? It's very funny. Yeah. Conjuring up a very funny image in my head. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's apt. Uh <laughs> yeah. I I I, my notes are that he's he feels a lot like a cartoon character, but he's far more sinister now. Yeah, 
I mean, he's doing, he's doing stuff like, you know, siphoning the gas and feels like he's protecting the woman and all this stuff. Oh, I was so mad when he's like, you know, I've been keeping you alive. I'm like, she's pretty capable. I mean, aside from the suicide attempt, which was new to the show, um, that was not part of the book. You know, she's been doing pretty good. She's taking her prenatals. She's doing what she's got to do. Yeah, that's a person yeah. that wants to stick around. Yeah, she's very much in the here and now. Although I did notice that Franny was a lot less mean to Harold in this this moment. The book, she was pretty savage to him. Oh, I didn't recall that. Yeah, there was lots of cuss words. She was just like fed up with him. But she's she conveys this fed upness in this moment here without being quite... There was like a lot of diatribes um, and they, they condensed it quite nicely. Well, the fact that she didn't come to heal right away, you know, that she's not going to do that. She she does recognize the logic of sticking with the known quantity, even though later we know that he's a jackass. <laughs> but in that moment, I can't fault her for, for doing that because, you know, this man shows up. He's older than us. He's got a rifle. He's smooth talker. That could be a bad combo, you know, right. in these scenarios. But also, she does have the point, why have we been spray painting our names across the country if we're not searching for other people to pair up with? So there's that as well. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I did think it was hilarious that, uh, that they did update it again for 2020, that Harold says, you know, you can join up with this happy asshole with the dimples who could be <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer. And then just the cut over to Stu and he's just like about to start laughing, which is not the moment to start laughing. But um, I think he's realizing that, you know, Harold is Harold is who he is and what he feels for Fran in that moment. So he's 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 reading the room correctly. But I just thought it was very funny the way to push off Stu. So I enjoyed Greg Kinnear's Glenn. I liked him a lot as Glenn. Not that I didn't enjoy the the first guy, but but uh, he had a, a kind of an older, I guess maybe stage actor sort of acting style. Whereas Greg, he kind of picks his roles, and mm-hmm. they and they're very Greg Kinnear like, I guess normally. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this guy's no no different. He's 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 not going to get into an argument. He is definitely a smart person. They can discuss stuff they can even disagree like the whole idea of up and running versus down and standing still mm-hmm. that's a philosophical disagreement mm-hmm. but but glenn's not gonna stand on the table and say get out of my house or anything he's just like well you want some more caviar yeah <laughs> ohio's finest the ohio caviar is just like ugh, i can't even imagine like the three river like <laughs> lake erie <laughs> good stuff good stuff the stuff about him being a painter is all true, but in the book, I believe he was more of a landscape guy. So, uh, not that that matters, but in this, you know, he cranks out a, a convincing Abigail. Yeah, portraits, definitely. Yeah, and uh, and Franny. What do you think of the moment where Glenn tries to minimize it and be like, mm, yeah, whatever. Uh, that was a commercial that we saw. Yeah, all that. As if he's heard the call of destiny and is like, "Mm, you must be calling for someone else. Right. Like, hold on. I'll take the message. I'll pass it along to the guy I'm going to meet tomorrow. Basically. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think he's well situated and I don't think he wants to rock the boat. I mean, he's got the generator. He seems to be well. I mean, I was was laughing because like our Christmas card. So this is two days after Christmas. Our Christmas card this year consisted of like a family portrait of us sitting in front of 
uh, our Christmas tree, because we're not going anywhere, with a package of toilet paper and paper towels and Lysol wipes and Clorox wipes. <laughs> I believe I've seen this picture. <laughs> yes, I, I did send you one. Um, and so that to me is like the, his version of 2020, like what we're living in. He's got the generator and then like th- they woke up the following morning and Stu finds the paintings and he wakes Glenn up and the lights are still on. Like to me, that is a show of prosperity, which was the joke that I was making with the toilet paper and the mm. paper towel mine. Like, you know, in 2020, this is wealth. This is happiness in 2020 as I have the, the big Costco size of paper towels. But yeah, so he's he's in a good place. Like he's now he's got a companion and he's got Kojak. So he's got Kojak prior to Stu coming into the scene. So he looks happy. I don't think he wants to rock the boat. That all resonates with me. And as if if I was him... I don't know that I, unless these dreams started to be something that kept me awake or happened every night or was the same dream every night, or it's just some, I, I, I don't know, I guess I'm just too dumb or something, but I would, I think I would do, I would act a little like him, you know, the call to adventure that doesn't, uh, it's not registering just yet. Um, right. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've still got s- 60 little bottles of the local caviar here. <laughs> But I can't fault him exactly. But ultimately, we know that he ends up in Boulder because we move to the flash forward scenes where he's part of the council. He's sort of the um, the devil's advocate voice Mm -hmm. because you can't have everybody just agree all the time. Right. He's very anti-establishment. We'll we'll put it to a vote like we're not, you know, preordained to be this uh, executive council. I got the very much the feeling the anti-establishmentarian from him. Yeah. Well, what was his, uh, was he philosophy or what was his Philo- uh, sociology? Sociology. Okay. I'm not sure now. Maybe, I don't remember. Maybe sociology. Yeah. Well, because he already has like the preconceived notion of, you know, like how to like rebuild society. Like, you know, they give me two people, give me three people, five people will have racism. You know, he has this already conceived in his mind. So maybe it was sociology. Some ology. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, his wife um, is a physicist. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the comparison to the hard sciences. Yeah. Yeah. And that reminds me of, uh, you know, Dana Scully introducing herself as an expert in the hard sciences uh, back in the X Files. X Files days. Yes. Yeah. I had a friend that I that I uh, introduced the X Files to, and she she came back to class the next day and and repeated that back to me, and she laughed. She's like, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The hard sciences." Uh, I'm sure that's something that's said. Maybe amongst very pretentious people. <laughs> uh, I would imagine so, yeah. In my circles, no. We don't talk about it. Um, no, because we're, we're holed up with Mulder and all the conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah, he's more fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure the that I'm going to go Mulder. on his adventures, but I want to hear about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to sit at the bar with the smoky man in the corner with his uh, morally cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, if you can tell me for sure that it's going to be a ghost at this pl- point in time, I'll go. I guess I'll, go. I'll, I'll yeah. yeah, but it, but just you know, dicking around, looking yeah, maybe there's need, a ghost. I need the preview. <laughs> I need the trailers. Exactly. Uh, we got the guy in his yellow Ferrari. Yeah, like arriving style, man. Yeah, it's very Vegas. To uh, you know, have you been to Vegas? Yes. All right, times. so you know they have the um, exotic car rentals. Mm-hmm. So that's not. Like to, outside the mark, yeah. That would be a terrible car to make that um, journey in, mm-hmm. you know. It's, <laughs> you get there fast, but you're yeah, very comfortable. No. What else we got? Oh, yeah, the message. He's coming. We hear it twice. Yeah. Um, Nadine getting ready as a teacher and having to inspect the school and all that with all the bloody spots and all that gross 
I guess it's like blood or body fluids or something. Yeah, I think it's just like when Har- Harold and Teddy probably came in to do body removal, that's like where the body was laid for how long, we don't know. And then there was residual human goo. Bad stuff. But like Ferrari Man, that's what I was calling him. Ferrari um, Man? Yeah, he's got, uh, you know, so the the second message is, you know, directed for Mother Abigail. And he's talking about slaves and um, Randall showed up to bring them out of the chaos. But when he starts talking about Randall, the wounds start bleeding again. Um, the, the crows hit the window, hallucination. And yeah, I feel like this was lifted from the book when he talks in Randall's voice. I have your blood in my fists. The the blow your house down, I don't think that was in the book, but it's, you know, it was very uh, foreboding. It was very scary. But the, the notion of these slaves and they're up on poles lends itself to why he would have those type of stigmata type wounds. So that was an interesting way to 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 bring the story along. Yeah. Well, the the phrase is, you know, the big bad wolf and three little pigs portraying himself as the big bad wolf. He managed to blow down houses of unprepared pigs. Mm-hmm. I wonder what we have coming up. Because they've been preparing for a new society out there in Boulder. That's what they think that their calling has been. Yeah. It feels like. And now maybe this is a wrinkle in their plans. I think that's something to keep an eye on. The mm-hmm. the idea of blowing down a house that might be a very literal <laughs> <laughs> description <laughs> of the intent there. Especially when we combine that with Nadine's mission to pull his trigger. That's another uh, triggers a gun. It's a little bitty explosion, but still uh, that same kind of imagery of mm-hmm. of something going off. Not just like uh, you know a knife attack. This is going to be a some something else. A little more well coordinated. Yes, the seizure that he undergoes is very. Uh, you know, that kind of unnatural body movement where you hear the yeah. cr- crunching. The crunching and, of the neck. Yeah. It didn't sound like he was going to get out of that alive. No. Sadly. No. What did you think of the moment where Harold's friend, or the supervisor, I guess, just kind of blows off the fact that Harold says, yeah, first of many, when they're talking about dropping off fresh bodies to the mass grave. Compared to the ones that have been laden for weeks yes it was a very blasé kind of a statement on harold's part i mean you know he just says you're the first of many and the other guy is just he's still probably in the head in the clouds about nadine because he's like oh she's like the hottest last woman on earth right and i'm closer to being the last man on it so i think he's a little used to harold i guess at this point harold just being a bit of an oddball maybe a bit of a cartoon character i likened to him a little bit earlier is this the guy who that Harold saved from falling into the I think the so. I think it's the same guy because they were okay. sitting there talking about like the drive-in movie theater. I think it's the same guy. So if a guy saves your life and starts sending up red flags, I, I guess it, you you might miss him. <laughs> right. And like you said, like he, he's just, he's, he's a bit of a goof, Harold. You know, he's... Says weird shit. Says weird shit and, you know, vomits when they go into a church and <laughs> just extract more bodies. You know, maybe he's just saying that they'll, that's one of the professions that they will always be around. They'll always be a grave digger, a ditch digger, you know, just not picking up on the, the ominous cue, but like as the, uh, as white rabbit by Jefferson airplane fires up behind him, it's like, oh, it's, it's a very ominous kind of sounding song anyway. Well, that song, as I've seen it applied in movies and TV is almost always accompanied with like a drug trip. Mm-hmm. And this case, 
there's not a drug trip, but you might interpret um, the results of a trip as being kind of like an altered sense of reality that mm -hmm. they're going to put on screen. And I think that more correctly applies <laughs> to what we saw in this episode. How did you take the playing of White Rabbit? Because that's a loaded song. Yeah, it, and it, it, you're right. It is always portrayed with some sort of altered reality. So yeah, we might get another Randall dreamlike state to open up the next episode because now, now Randall's putting out the forays. He's... He's obviously holed up in Vegas. We've seen enough of this imagery to know that he's in Las Vegas, which is not all that far from Boulder. A car is able to make the the trip in enough time to not kill Stigmata Man, Ferrari Man. So there's going to be some sort of more of a connection, more of communication to Randall. I'm hoping that we see the, maybe the altered state that Randall is living in, the altered reality that or altered reality that that Randall is living in in Las Vegas because it's time. It's time to see where he's holed up and what he's doing and who these slaves are and what they're doing on poles and who are the people putting them up on poles. What's, what's Harold, not Harold, what's um, Lloyd doing? I need to see what Lloyd's doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah, questions. Yeah, for sure. That's got to be coming up because we've met our five council members. Yes. I can't really think of anyone else main, you know, in Boulder to remain. I mean, I know that there's a guy named Ralph that eventually gives Nick and Tom a ride. Is that Ralph Brentner? I think. Isn't it who Ralph? Who's been repurposed as Ray Brentner, who brings Mother Abigail to the hospital. She's the sentry that's standing outside the house ah. in the last. So, yeah. So she's Ray Brentner. Okay. Well, I guess the story was pretty male heavy before. And that Ralph was just, he was just a guy, you yeah. know. Ray is the one who's standing outside. Um, oh, limiting Mother access, Abby. right. Yeah, right. She, like, she's like the, the, I call her the sentry at the door, yeah. Um, and then she's the one who walks in with Mother Abigail on her arm. Okay. Yeah, they kind of snuck her in because she met, she introduced herself to Larry in the last episode. It was Ray Brentner, and I kind of bookmarked that. I was like, let me look that up. And then it, it, it's Ralph Brentner's character. As far as main characters go, there's really just kind of this wild card that I can think of left to introduce this guy named the Trash Can Man mm -hmm. and how they turn that into something that 2020 viewers will accept as a thing that, <laughs> that they want to keep watching is, is uh, despicable curious yeah well and and but comically almost silly in it's in it's kind of datedness i guess and and, and yeah. the way that he acts and what he does and how he does it and the, what he says and and all that stuff is i don't know it's it's not going to be satisfying to today's audiences if they play it the same way that they did 20 years ago or the or in the book um right i'm going to need a little bit more i'm not sure what i'm going to need to see out of him do you, do you agree or do you, uh, what are you looking for with today's Trash Cat Man? Well, it'd be interesting to see how they update him because, I mean, I think they did a good job in bringing Tom Colin into the 21st century. So, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how people react to him, if they're especially if they're not familiar with the story and how they bring him in to do that. I'm not sure. But you did get a reprieve. You did say in the beginning of episode one that you, you hope that the kid gets skipped. Yes, he is skipped. 
Awesome. I did some I did some digging around. I was like looking to see stuff about the show. Marilyn Manson was supposed to play him. So he was originally supposed to be part of the story. So he had, apparently had a song that he was going to do and he was going to play the kid. So allegedly, supposedly, you can look into it and see it for yourself. Supposedly he was cut due to budget concerns. That seems to be the cleansed story. But he is not making an appearance. That's fine. Although yeah. that, I mean, that would have been an interesting, you know, cutting room floor thing to see, but working that yeah. into the story, not, not something I would have been interested in, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but a deleted scene. Yeah. I think that'd be yeah, interesting. I'd, I'd watch that like in the, you know, sort of the DVD right. you know, behind the scenes, deleted scenes. Well, thanks for finding that out. That's, no that worries. is When I saw that, I was like, rumor. oh, Paul will be thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Manson would have been a, uh, like a. Like a cool kid but well it would have been um one of those situations when he's on screen it would be a little like am i am i seeing who i think I'm seeing here? Right. you know that sort of thing and because he's very distinctive even out of makeup he's mm -hmm. still pretty much marilyn manson from what i understand yeah any other things to look forward to in the coming weeks we pretty much nailed it with nick being central to this episode uh, we've both been saying that we're kind of transitioning to a middle part here um, this coming episode, number four, should be the second of this writing and directing pairs, pair <laughs> of episodes. <laughs> so I wonder if it'll be more of the same or more Vegas or just more Boulder. I think we're, might, we're probably going to get more Boulder, more of the the five okay. doing their thing. And then I think we're going to get some more of... Vegas. We're getting some snippets of Vegas, but I don't think that we're going to get more about Vegas until a little bit later in the story. You know, I think I think the bits that Glenn was dropping about not being happy with the fact that they're they're not a representative government, and then you have Larry who is trying to find his place, and he might be convincible. You know that that maybe Glenn has a good point, and all that stuff uh, might build toward them needing to solidify the way that they're doing things rather than just sort of having ad hoc committee meetings every time there's a big decision. Right. And there's always the Harold card. He, I think he's going to slip further into his own demons. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's the deep end for sure. Mm. So yeah, we're already like a third of the way through. I think there's nine episodes in nine, all. Yeah. It's like that first episode of, or sort of first season of Yellowstone. It's, you watch that ninth one. You're like, uh, it's only nine, nine. Are you sure? Where, where's, where's, what, what's going on here? Only nine, but yeah, nine. They they get that. That's intentional. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, looking forward to talking again next week over episode four. Again, this was episode name blank page. Did you have any insight into that name? You know, when I thought about it afterwards, because I went because I took the notes, watched it, and went back and was like, "What's this episode called?" Blank page. And then in the dream sequence with Mother Abigail and Nick. She tells him that, you know, he's a blank page and then the she's she's gone in the dream. And then like there's a book on the desk in front of the window and it flips to an open page, like a mm. blank page. So that's what I was kind of saying that like Nick gets to write the story. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I took that from blank page. It might be far off the mark, but who knows? <laughs> no, that's probably it's probably dead on that. Nick has this unwritten story to chart and his might be the you know, might be the most important one. And he's also, he also has to write his thoughts every time he wants to communicate. There's, Although there, there's one moment that I was like, oh, I wanted to talk to you about this. 
anytime Fran is speaking when they're in the larger group, she signs. She had the deaf brother that we learned in episode one. Um, so she signs for Nick's benefit to give him. Did, did you pick up on that? I did not. Oh, when they're in the hospital. So when Ferrari man's in the bed in the back and they're having the anti-establishment, do we do we form a co- cohesive government or if he's doing everything by ad hoc? She's signing any time that she speaks and Nick is watching her hands. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated the fact that she was doing that for Nick's benefit. So this way he doesn't have to because it's hard to to focus on five people who are trying to talk and read all their lips and and understand everything that's going on. Uh, from that that standpoint. But we learned in episode one that her brother who passed away, he had been deaf. So she does have some sign language. And we saw that in episode two, when she's talking to Joe, she tries to sign with him, thinking that he might have this nonverbal state that he's in is, is a, a much longer state for him, but it turns out it's not. But yeah, so I noticed that she was signing for his benefit. I was like, oh, that's like, that is a very nice touch. Anyway, again, uh, this has been Paul. And Sheila. And we'll catch you next week talking again about The Stand Episode 4. Thanks a lot. Wishing you a happy new year. And if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, that would be greatly appreciated or wherever you listen to your podcast. Five stars are greatly appreciated. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.